Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Well, like I said, I'm Pastor Ben, and I get to continue our sermon series today. And as we've been working through this sermon series, there's really been one question that has been driving this series, which is, what would you ask Jesus if he was sitting across the table from you? And we presented that question to you. And as a response, you guys have filled out connection cards, and you've emailed the office with all of the questions that you guys would ask Jesus, all of those curiosities. And then we actually designed the sermon series with you guys in mind, with your very questions. And there's still time, so if you still have some questions, go ahead and submit them on your connection card. You can drop it in the offering plate, call the office, email the office. And then what we do is we take all those questions And if there's a lot of them that kind of stacking up something in the same theme, we tend to go in that direction to serve you guys well. So you still have have time to do that. But as we've been working through this sermon series, we're now into part four. I've seen something interesting this go around is that a lot of you guys are doing follow-up questions, right? We might answer a question or, or teach you a truth and then you ask a question to kind of add to that. Now, of course, what we can't do is week after week after week after week talk about the the same thing. And so what we're doing instead is we're doing something that Jesus did. You see, when Jesus taught, a lot of people would ask him follow-up questions, right? They're trying to find a, a deeper understanding, and so he would pull them to the side or give clarity. His disciples would do this all the time, and he would spend some time with them and say, this is what this meant. Now, we don't have the luxury of doing that. We don't have the luxury of of teaching every day of the week. But what we are doing is we have a podcast, which is like a radio broadcast available on demand. We release it on Thursday. And we're taking those additional questions that you guys have presented us, and then we're we're putting them into the podcast and answering them over about an hour-long format that you can listen to while you're in the car or mowing or, or whatever you're doing throughout your week. And so if you're wondering, hey, did they answer my question or did they give me clarity? You can go ahead and just go to our website and you can find the way to navigate that and get connected with that. But today we're going to move on. We're moving on to a new question that you guys have asked, a new question that is tailoring our conversation today. And the question is this, is reincarnation real? Now, to get us on the same page, just so we're all working with the the same definition of the same term, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about when I say reincarnation. The idea of of reincarnation is that when we die, we come back. We might come back as another human being. We might come back as maybe an animal. We might come back as a plant. It it really depends on how good we are. This is the idea, right? If you're really, really good, you come back and you kind of upgrade. Maybe your next life you'll be a famous movie star or a famous singer or something like that, depending on if you're good. Now, if you're very, very bad, maybe you're like a, a murderer or someone who's not very nice, then you come back as something lower tier. And that's the idea of reincarnation. 
unlimited chances to get it right. And every time you get it right, you kind of move up in the levels until finally you essentially become perfect and you're, you're released from this endless cycle. So this is our question today. Is, is reincarnation a grace-filled gift from God where we have unlimited chances until we finally get it right? Or is reincarnation a lie that entraps us in a, in a broken, sinful world forever? Well, let's go to Christ's words himself. And to do that, what I need you to do is to imagine that Jesus is with us right now, right? Maybe it's probably downtown Sterling because he would never be able to uh, fit the crowd that he would pull in, in a room like this. So just imagine he's in the Sock Valley and of course people are gathering because Jesus, when he taught, when he did miracles, when he told stories, people would gather because he was amazing, right? He was the greatest storyteller ever to live and so the crowds would be huge. So let's just imagine this is the reality we're living in. Jesus is there, he's talking, he's teaching, he's telling stories and everyone, and I mean everyone, is there. And finally, you make your way there. And when you show up, he's in the middle of telling a bunch of stories. In fact, he's about four or five stories in. But by the time you get there, this is the story that he's telling. And this is how he begins. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And so as you show up, he tells a story and he introduces us to the first character. And so it's a rich guy. It's a wealthy guy, but not just a rich guy or a wealthy guy. This is an immensely wealthy guy, an immensely rich guy. One of the most rich people you would ever encounter. Probably one of those people you don't even encounter. You only see on TV. Now, the reason we know this is because of the details and the richness of the story that Jesus is telling. He says, this guy is wearing purple and fine linen. Now, in our modern context, to wear purple is not very special. And as a Vikings fan, I can tell you right now, it's not special at all. It's just really, really embarrassing to wear purple. But in that day, to wear purple was a sign that you were very special. It was very, very, very expensive. And so when Jesus is telling this story, they understood it like we kind of understand it, right? This is name brand type material, right? This is what this guy wore. Now, I would list off a bunch of name, name brands for you guys, but I don't, I don't know them. I don't, I don't live in that world. But I do know this, and you know this. There are some clothes that are so expensive that you would not want to even put them on at risk of spilling something on it, right? You wouldn't even want to try it on because if you spilled or your pen leaked on that and you had to buy it, it would bankrupt you, right? There are certain clothes that are that extravagant and that expensive. And so what do we see about this guy? This is what he wore all of the time. It wasn't like he rented a tux. He owned all of these things, right? His loungewear, his workwear, his going outwear. It was all top shelf. It was all name branded. This is the type of guy we're talking about. And if that wasn't clear, look at his diet. It says that he feasted every day. It wasn't a special occasion. It wasn't like I went on the weekend, I saved my money, and we went to this fancy restaurant one time in my life, you know, that, that one time we had enough money or someone paid for us. No, no, no. This guy, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks in between, he was never limited by resources. He always had the best of the best of the best of the best. This guy had so much money, he did not have to budget, 
right? He had so much money that he knew he didn't have to tell the money where to go because it was always gonna be there. He could not spend as fast as he had or made money. This is the type of guy that we're talking about, which is completely contrasted by this next character. This is what Jesus said. And at his gate, the rich man's gate, lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. So we're introduced to another character. This guy actually has a name, which is significant. His name is Lazarus. This is the only time in scripture where Jesus told a parable or story and he used someone's name. Now, scholars debate about this, but some of them think that he's, he's actually using a, a point of reference, not just a story, but maybe a real life person or maybe an insight into a, a real life event. But anyways, this is what we see about this guy. He's laying at the rich man's gate. Now, the reason he's laying there is because he's, he's a beggar. And he's not a beggar because he's too lazy to work, right? He's not motivated. That's not the case. He's laying there because he cannot move. Look at the description that Jesus gives. It says the animals are coming up and they're licking his wounds. Now, the animals aren't coming up because they're companions, right? That's not the point. The point is that he cannot move. He can't even fight them away. Either he doesn't have the strength or he doesn't have the capacity to even fight these animals away. This guy is, is desperately hopeless, impoverished. All he can do is have some people carry him to this rich man's gate and just hope, 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 hope that maybe as this rich guy walks out, he might drop some food, might hand him some money. You see, if you're poor, if you're a beggar, if this is all you can do, you're going to put yourself in the best possible place where you can be resourced. And so he gets carried to the rich man's gate because everyone knows the rich man's name. Everyone knows the rich man's lifestyle, right? People talk about it and think about it and the what if. What if I could live like that? This is who this rich man is. And so he lays there and he dreams about the lifestyle this guy leads. And he hopes that as he walks out of his gate, that maybe he tosses some of that good food. Maybe he throws a $100 bill at him because for him, it would be like pennies, right? So this is where he lays, just hoping beyond hope that he can get something. Well, this is where Jesus goes next. And the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. So Jesus continues to contrast these two characters. The poor man dies, and just like he lived his life, he was carried. But instead of to the gate, he was taken to the pearly gates, right, by the angels, and he goes to heaven. The rich man is buried probably in a very elaborate tomb, a very expensive and beautiful tomb, but he ends up someplace very, very different. He ends up in, in hell. Now, what we see here is despite all these contrasts of these two characters, they have something very much in common, something we all have very much in common. In the end, everyone in this room, we will end up dying. No matter how much money we have, no matter how much health we have at this point in time, all of us will die. So imagine, we're downtown. The crowds are gathered. We're listening to this story. And when he gets to this point in time, you can't help it. Right, you barge to the crowd, you wave your arms, you get Christ's attention, and you say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. 
But what happens when we die? Can we come back? Is reincarnation real? And Jesus looks at you and he answers your question with his story. In Hades, where he's being tormented, he's talking about the rich guy, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so we see this rich guy, he's in hell. It says he's being tormented. Now there's a lot of descriptors in the Bible about hell. It's called the place of isolation, darkness, we're in chains, there's fire. These are all descriptors to really just show the horror of what it would be like to be separated forever from the love of God. And so this is where this guy is. This is the reality that he's living. And so he looks up and he sees this guy he's familiar with as the, the beggar outside his gate. It's Lazarus. But notice the difference. He's sitting up now. Right? He's been fully restored and he's sitting right next to Abraham. He's sitting next to him because that, that signifies that they're having a feast. They're having a party. And so the roles have been completely reversed. Now he's hoping that something will roll off their table into his reality. So this is what happens. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. So he screams out, Father Abraham. Now, when he says this term, right, when he says Father Abraham, it gives us a pretty good clue of what this guy was in life. He was a Jewish guy, right? Because only a Jewish person would call him Father Abraham, which kind of can run in the face of some of the thoughts that we might have about Jews, right? We see something significant. You see, just because he was genetically Jewish or just because he had that heritage doesn't mean that he just automatically ends up in heaven. You see, we are counted righteous on account of Christ. It's about the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And in this guy's life, he didn't want that relationship with his heavenly father. He was too caught up in the realities of this world. But look at what he does. He's looking up. He has a hope. He wants some water. And so he says, have Lazarus do this, right? Father Abraham, have Lazarus do this. Now we get another sneak peek into this guy's heart and soul, right? Even though his life has ended, sin is still taking his toll. He still views himself as someone very, very special and as Lazarus, as somebody who's subservient to him, right? Who's meant to serve him. Abraham, have this guy Lazarus serve me. Bring me water. Well, this is what happens. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. So Abraham begins to explain. This is the reality that you are living. In your life, your life was perfect. You had everything. But now you're experiencing a horrible eternity. But Lazarus, his life was horrible. And now he's experiencing a perfect eternity. Because in your life, you were so focused on the things that you had and the things that you could possess, you were so caught up in the world that you missed your relationship with your heavenly father. It was never something that was important to you. But Lazarus, he had 
nothing. He had nothing. The world offered him nothing except for his relationship with his heavenly father. What Abraham is saying here is, you've made your bed, right? This is the reality that you're living in. In fact, he goes on and clarifies even more. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. And so Abraham continues to explain the reality that this guy is experiencing, right? No one can go from hell to heaven and no one can go from heaven to hell. This is the reality. Now, as this rich man digests this information and this reality that he is existing in, his wheels start spinning. And he's thinking, yeah, but I can't go there and you can't go here, but maybe we can go there, right? Maybe we can go back to earth. That's the idea of reincarnation, right? If maybe we can go back, maybe we can go fix this. And so this is what happens. He said, then father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. So once again, right, this is the idea. Maybe I can't go, but maybe Lazarus can go and we'll talk to them because I got five brothers and I don't want them to end up here. This place is, is horrible. And maybe he can warn them. Once again, notice his posture, right? Lazarus will serve me. Lazarus will serve my brothers. But there's something interesting that he does not say here. What he does not say is, can I go back and have another chance? Right, apparently somewhere in his understanding of what's going on is he must realize that he can't go back. You see, in the book of Hebrews, we actually see that truth is very clearly written for us. This is what it says. And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that, the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, the writer of Hebrews is very, very clear. We get to die once. We have one life to live. And then he points towards Christ. The one who's here to fix the scenario. Because if we had unlimited lives to live until we could get it right... What's the point of Jesus? So Jesus continues, and he sides with this point of view. This is what he says. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. So back into Christ's parable, he says, look, right? Abraham says, look, they have everything they need. They have Moses and the prophets. This is holy scripture, right? They, they have the scripture. And even if they didn't have that, they have the light of creation. In other words, what Abraham is saying is they have no excuse. They have everything they need to follow their heavenly father. And if they choose not to go that path, that's their own choice. And the story moves on. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And what he says next seems to make sense, right? It, surely if there's something supernatural would happen, Surely if they would experience a miracle, surely if someone from the dead came back and spoke to them, they would repent, they would turn, they would let go of this life and they would follow Jesus, they would follow God. Surely that would work, right? That may seem to make sense. And Abraham responds, but truly Jesus responds in his story 
And this is what he closes with. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus ends with his punchline. And he ends with a prophecy. You see, the amazing thing to me about Jesus' resurrection is not that he rose from the dead. The amazing thing to me about Christ's resurrection is that the very people who ran into the resurrected Christ didn't immediately repent and turn to him. In fact, you guys are probably familiar with the story, right? The religious leaders know Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, and what do they do? They pay off the soldiers to tell a lie about Jesus being stolen. When confronted with the very clear and evident truth, they stole, they chose their power and this life over their relationship with Jesus. So here we are. We're back in this great crowd. Jesus has just finished up his story and the crowd is starting to make their way home to go get their dinner and spend time with their family. But you're not done yet. You need one more clarifier. You have one more thought. You need to understand this. And so as everyone makes their way home, you make your way up to Jesus. You say, Jesus, help me understand. I really want to get this. Help me understand. And Jesus, even though he's tired, he's been telling stories all day. He's hungry. He's fatigued. He's ready to go on with his day. He looks at you with compassion. He says, let me explain. In the beginning, there was a garden. And Adam and Eve lived there. And in this garden, there was a tree. It was the tree of life. This tree was not off limits. They could eat of it day in and day out. It would give them life, eternal life. But there was another tree as well. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and the heavenly father said, don't eat of this tree. Because if you do, it's going to bring death and corruption and destruction into the world. And they ate of it. And in came sin. And in came the death and destruction that comes with sin. And the world was corrupted and they were corrupted. And so God took them out of the garden. Because this is what he knew. If they stayed in the garden and they ate of the tree of life, they would never get out of this endless cycle. No matter how many chances they had, no matter how many lives they lived, they would never do it right. So God gave them a solution. That solution was me, Jesus said. You see, I came into the world as the ultimate solution. And he started preparing people's hearts for this moment and this truth. He set up the tabernacle and the temple and he brought in the priests and the sacrificial system and animals were killed and the blood was shed and it was washing people's sins away but really it was all pointing towards me and I came and I died on the cross for your sins and my blood ran down that cross and it's my blood that covers your sin. You see, the truth is this, you have one life to live and you have one legacy to leave. So Jesus says, I'm gonna leave you with two questions. The very, very same two questions that I asked of my disciples and I've asked of every follower of Christ ever since then, every person on the earth ever since then. 
The first one is this. Who do you say that I am? Right, who do you say that I am? Am I just a good teacher? Am I a great storyteller? Am I a fraud? Am I a fake? Am I a myth? Or am I the Messiah? Am I the Christ? Am I the Lord? Am I the boss of your life? And the second is like it. Will you follow me? Will you follow me all throughout your life? And will you follow me into eternity?